Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico and Brad Avery via Skype. Hey. Today we're going to be discussing the film canon. You know, all those great or maybe not great top 100 lists. You know, you got the AFI, you got a bunch of others, you know, Citizen Kane's always hovering top there and you know vertigo and all that we're going to talk about our thoughts on the canon we'll go off in different areas we'll talk about other things too we'll talk about how you discover movies you know that's always a big way as you look at lists this topic was brought forth by brad brad tell me your thoughts on the film canon well my idea for it was just kind of everybody when they're first starting out getting seriously into movies usually gravitates towards those lists there's stuff like the AFI Top 100, there's a sight and sound poll, there's websites like They Shoot Pictures, uh, there's those books, 1001 Films See Before You Die. And so you kind of, when you look at multiple lists, you realize that it really is this consensus and comes up to be the same films over and over again. And you have a lot of them that really, when you're watching these for the first time, it do, they do blow you away. You are like, that is a great film. You totally see why they belong on those lists. And then you sort of start, as you get deeper into discovering film, you start kind of growing out of those lists. Like, you don't really need them anymore. It's kind of like it's giving you your wheels to uh, to go off on your own and discover more. So I've sort of come at this point in film watching where there's still a lot of the canonized films that I haven't seen that, and some that I, I really do need to get on that I've just kind of been dragging my feet on or just haven't gotten to yet. But I'm sort of also in this place now where I feel that I know enough about film that I can start just branching off and finding rarer films or just films that aren't covered by those lists. What are the ones that are kind of the ones you haven't seen? Because I, I have that same problem. There are a lot of, you know, supposed classics that I just haven't seen. Yeah, I, you know, and obviously these are like shameful admissions, but I really haven't seen any Lubitsch films. Really? Yeah. I oh, just, they're so much fun. I don't know why I just keep avoiding them i'm not it's not like i think they're going to be bad or something because i'm actually i'm sure when i watch them i'm going to love them but i just haven't gotten into them yet which are the fun ones trouble in paradise is really good the thing about i think the sort of the trouble with approaching movies off a list is that you you kind of they end up feeling like homework mm. a lot of times even if they they shouldn't and aren't it's like with great books you know yeah. You and, get stuck with them in school and then you never appreciate them as like actual fun. And I never did my homework, so I never really read any of the classics in school. So I discovered a lot of them, you know, like after. And that's, you know, I'm I'm a huge fan now of um, Tolstoy and like Homer and all these things that I just sort of failed on reading in school. I know you're big on Moby Dick. Did you read that in school or after? Uh, I read that in school. It wasn't an assignment. I just read it. First time I read it, I was 17 and we were taking a standardized test and I bombed the test because I kept just filling out random answers just to have more time to read the book. <laughs> but um, with, with film, you have that same sort of um, homework assignment problem. I don't know how you overcome that because I feel like, and I think probably the, the two of you would agree that, that you need to start somewhere. With an, with an intention, like a list or something, right? Yeah, you need you need some sort of map for cinema, at least at the outset. And then I think, you know, you find, it's almost like you start with like a global map and then you start getting into like local maps and local streets, you know, these, these small 
little patches in film where yeah, you can you find really what responds. What yeah, you respond to yeah. You know, you see maybe the '80s horror movie that you love, and then you're like, "Well, wait a second. There's there's Fulci, there's Suavi, there's uh, Bruno Mattai, and you start going off yeah. on like all these little neighborhoods of uh, a particular genre. Does Lubitsch feel like homework to you? That's possible. You know what? And this was funny because it was something that I wanted to talk about was there's kind of this academic feeling to a lot of the canon. And it almost does start to like sap the fun out of it in a way that you, you do feel like it's work. Like I just went and saw Citizen Kane at the Harvard Film Archive about a week or two ago. And the guy there who did the introduction, this is Harvard. So he's talking, he's doing this introduction and he's talking about deep focus and all those kind of things they teach you in intro to film class and talking about it in this very academic way. But then when you watch this in Kane, you never get the sense from the discourse that this is such a fun, emotional movie. It's really affecting. Like no one, I've never seen anyone talk about that scene where uh, Kane is standing out in the, in the cold and he has mud splashed all over his face and he meets the uh, girl who becomes his second oh, wife. Oh, the, the meet cute scene? Yeah, it's almost like this chaplain like moment, and no one ever talks about how. It's sweet like a Nora Ephron moment. scene, is what it's like. It's and a very no one, emotional movie. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great point. The other thing is, that I I think a lot of the the stuff that's credited to Citizen Kane, not to take anything away from Citizen Kane, because I really think it's a tremendous movie and it's a lot of fun and it's worth seeing and it's beautifully written, but a lot of the stuff that for some reason, film critics are really big, I think, on assigning firsts to things and saying like. This was the first to do this. This is the, the first example of this. None of it is true in Citizen Kane. They say it was the, the first movie with um, complex overlapping dialogue. It's not because Rules of the Game was there first. It's not the first movie with deep focus because Greg Tolan and John Ford were playing around with that for years before that. It's none of the firsts. The, the, the structure of the flashbacks that they say was the first, the power and the glory did that in 30, either 33 or 36, I forget. But it's not the um, the herald of all this stuff that people say it it invented, and maybe like I mean, do you think that matters? Because I really don't. I don't think that takes away anything from the caliber of that filmmaking. Do you think that makes it better, almost as a, a teaching tool? Because it's kind of like you get a lot in one area rather think, rather than yeah. seeing a bunch of different films. I think maybe that's it. It's sort of a synthesis. Sorry, what were you going to say, Brad? I was going to say, yeah, that's exactly why it's a teaching tool. It's it's I've heard the phrase used that Citizen Kane is just so very teachable. And that's why it kind of became that film that every film class goes to. And, and it's just is this this combination of all these great factors coming together and doing it just perfectly. And I think that's why Kane kind of endures. Teachability is a really interesting way to approach it, because um, the, the generation of film critics that that sort of enshrined what became the canon, the, the people who sort of at the outset would, would approach it seriously, like of James Aggie's generation. Um, they were famous, except for Aggie, for always ignoring the silent comedies by Chaplin, Keaton, and Harold Lloyd, and to a lesser extent, Langdon and a few of the other ones, because even though they all knew they were probably the best movies being made in the 20s, nobody knew how to talk about them seriously as art. Because everything they were doing was so subtle in comparison to, say, Abel Gantz or um, Bert, uh, what, what's his face, Ziga, Vertov, and all, all those, you know, who were really a little more heightened in their sort of stylization. 
they they kind of critically ignored um, stuff like the gold rush, which, you know, I mean, the gold rush, how could you possibly ever ignore that? Or even Sherlock Jr., which is a little more complex. Until the 50s, late 40s, early 50s, it was, it was sort of treated the way you might treat now um, Michael Bay. There also is a sense of, of seriousness and films that aren't really considered serious get kind of trashed. But no one really ever expects The Seventh Seal to be so funny, for yeah. example. I think that throws people off with it. Like, you, you kind of go into these films, like Homework, expecting Bergman or uh, Fellini or whoever to just be dull and kind of this academic style. And I feel like that's almost hammered into you in schools with, with literature, too. Like, I feel like they gave us Dickens too early and now I can't really get into Dickens because I was you know 15 when trying to read Great Expectations and it just did not connect with me at all and now I go back to that book and I can't do it so there's almost a sense that you you don't realize that there's a reason these films are so beloved and part of the reason they're so beloved is that they're entertaining and they're fun and that's kind of lost in the, the canonization is that movies are fun yeah, there's a little bit of putting a necktie on everything. Like, um, with music, if any country song is ever any good, they'll call it a folk song. And it's <laughs> the same thing with movies, where all of a sudden, if you have a horror movie that's any good, all of a sudden it becomes a thriller. And, you know, like... like Sixth Sense. Yeah, or Silence of the Lambs is the big one. I mean, everybody goes around calling that a thriller. That's a stone-cold horror movie. There's a certain branch of the, the I guess, academic criticism that's still very uncomfortable with, with that, that's still caught up on the high art, low art thing. I worry about that because I, I think it's kind of damaging because it, it really gives you this impression, this false impression of a lot of films that they endorse, that they're going to be like a slog. Like people come into, um, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people about this. A lot of people expect the first time they see it for Casablanca to be a very long movie because it's acclaimed. So they have, their expectations are going to be that it's deliberate and long and and slow. And it's, in fact, very fast and very funny. I mean, the pacing of that one, it's paced like nothing now. You know, it's paced like whiplash. It just keeps moving and moving and moving. But you don't really anticipate that. I think if you approach it from the, from the perspective of it being a homework assignment. I think some of that is probably, you know, these movies get lumped in with Gone with the Wind. Which Gone is, with the Wind is not slow either, though. Yeah, that, but that is, movie flies by. But it's very long, and I think people yeah. assume naturally that acclaimed films are long. Yeah, but even the long ones, I mean, Gone with the Wind, it's essentially what now would be a TV miniseries. You know, it has it has a intermission, there are act breaks all over it. It's, you know, it's it's not weighing down on you. It's, it's this fast-moving thing that gives you time to go piss in the middle and like get your shit together and come same with Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, it, they just don't feel long. The bad ones do. I think 10 commandments feels very long to me, but you know, gone with the wind, seven samurai. They don't, they never felt long to me. It's that Ebert quote about how, uh, no good movie is too long and no bad movie is too short. Yeah. Right. Which I completely disagree with by the way. Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot of good movies are too long. A lot of movies are too long. I think as much as I love it, Terminator 2 is probably like 10 minutes too long. And a lot of bad movies would be better if they just gave themselves a little more time to stretch out. Like, it wasn't a bad movie by any stretch, but um, Boyhood, I think, was either a half hour too short or a half hour too long. 
because the movie goes on and on and then it like stops and then it comes back where you see him on that hiking trip at the very end and it's like another 15 minutes or so and like it's not enough to get you sort of fully back into it so it either i think that section either needed to go or be extended by another half hour to make it feel shorter i do think there's truth to a movie ending and you wanting more and that being a good thing rather than you wanting there to be a little bit less i think it's always better to err on leaving them wanting more than making them feel right. like you overstayed a little bit. But I mean, if the pacing is wrong, your movie can feel longer by being shorter. Exactly. The, you know? the pacing is, is paramount. Or like, you want to leave them wanting more, but you don't want them leaving feeling like they didn't get enough. Yeah. Although at the same time, I, I really love certain older movies that would just... You know, you end and then you get 10 seconds of denouement and that's it. Like Cape Fear, that yeah. movie ends. And that's perfect. I could not take another like five minutes of police coming and asking what happened. It just ends. I no. mean, look at, look at Casablanca, which was originally going to have a longer ending and they cut it. The, uh, the original end of Casablanca was you were supposed to see Claude Rains and Humphrey Bogart on like a boat going out, like a, like a battleship going out to fight in the war effort. And they cut it. So it ends on that great, perfectly placed natural stopping point. Yeah, I can't imagine how you could extend that ending. Yeah. So to bring it back to uh, to canon, did you start with like the AFI and stuff? And, and, and then where did you go off uh, after that point, Brad? For me personally, I started paying attention around junior year of high school or something. I think I got a Netflix account and was able to finally start watching movies. I never really went off the AFI list. I think I used the IMDb list for a little bit, and then I found the They Shoot Pictures list and jumped over to that, and that's what I mostly used um, for a long time. What do you think of the IMDb list? That's a weirdly uh, controversial one. It's it's weird in that as time has gone on, it's become more and more centric to recent to new releases. Yeah, it's a very people, fanboy, that list. Which is, I guess, I guess it's good when you're first starting out because it gets you to watch the popular stuff like... I had never seen like Shawshank or anything like that because until I started going off of that list. And then, you know, you get through, you realize stuff. How like, old were you when you saw Shawshank? God, how old was I? Like 17, 18? I feel like that's yeah. a movie that like every 14 year old boy is just given a copy of. I think I saw that later too. I think I might have seen that when I was like 19. Really? Well, I, th I think in the, the 1977 episode, you're talking about discovering David Lynch at like 14 and not doing that. But I didn't really find him until college either. And so I think college is when I finally saw a lot of the major hitters. Like I never saw 2001 until college. I actually never saw Raiders of the Lost Ark until college. That just, that's one of those movies where like your parents are supposed to give it to you at yeah. this, this day and age. And that never happened. I feel so like I, I need to call Child Protective Services. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They never showed me Jaws either. That's, that's one I saw when I was 18 after I got out of the house. I saw the Jaws sequels before I saw Jaws. How did that happen? Because they were always on TV. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And, um, I wanted to see Jaws, but my mom wouldn't let me rent it when I was like five or six or whatever. So I had to wait until I was like, like 10. But by then, I mean, I had seen all the sequels on TV. Jaws was, I remember even at a very young age, that was sort of a revelation, just being like, wow. And it might be because I saw the shitty ones first, so I had sort of a barometer. You know what it was for me? The revelation was Pulp Fiction. As soon as we got the Netflix account, I finally got that because all my friends would talk about it. And that was sort of the moment where I was like, wow, I didn't know movies could be this cool. And then I, I read up on Tarantino on Wikipedia or whatever, and they talked about how like cinephilia and like all that whole thing of just wanting to watch as many movies as you can. So I 
that's what kind of motivated me to just start seeking things out. And I saw a lot of strange stuff in strange orders. Like I saw freaks in high school, but I never saw The Godfather until college. So I didn't see The Godfather until a couple of years ago. I, I mean, I would always just put that one off because I just I had this dread that I wasn't going to like it. And I was Godfather I was absolutely one. right. <laughs> everybody, everybody feels that way about Godfather. Nobody thinks they're going to like it. My sister, who is fucking New York Sicilian, hadn't seen it until after she was married because she was convinced she wouldn't like it. And then when my dad found out it was like a, it was a major thing. So he called the whole family over. It, it was like a scene from the Godfather. Yeah. It was like the whole five families came over and watched it and everybody loved it. My sister loved it. The Godfather, I think is a very accurate depiction of what it was like for Italians to assimilate in America. Just going from having watched it with like my grandparents and, and just hearing like the family stories and stuff like the Godfather, I think because it's Cop Coppola. I mean, that was like a true story for him. Coppola, you know, his father was like in the mafia or dealt with them or something. But I, I mean, they, I think it really captures perfectly that era of American immigration. This might be because I've seen so many parodies of it before I actually saw it. But I cannot stand Marlon Brando's performance in The Godfather or the look of him or any of it. It's just so fucking silly to me. I can't Some do it. Some of those movies are destroyed by pop culture before you can get to them. Yeah, I think that happened with me with The Godfather. That might have or, happened to me with Harold and Maude, which I couldn't, I just could not cope with Harold and Maude. And I think it was because of all the movies influenced by Harold and Maude, all the, you know, like twee, you know, awkward um, romance movies, which is not a thing I respond to anyway, but like, I, I saw so many of them that it, the magic was gone. You know what I find interesting is it feels like everybody has a handful of classics that don't do it for them. I'm always more like. interested in that than in the ones that people like. Like, I'm very yeah. interested in which ones people just don't respond to. I just saw Andre Rublev for the first time last week and didn't work for me. And I've, I've liked other Tarkovsky stuff. I like Solaris and I like Stalker, but Andre Rublev just, it was, it was too long and it, I could not get into it. I'm not big on uh, Hitchcock. I've never been into Vertigo. I know Vertigo always hovers around one or two on those lists after Citizen Kane. I remember there was like, I guess a couple years back, there was like all this like uproar of like, now it's number one. And it's like, who the fuck even, first of all, gets excited about any of that, like, and follows it like it's a fucking sports team. But, you know, Vertigo doesn't work for me. A lot of Hitchcock doesn't work for me. I love Psycho, though. It's interesting that Hitchcock leads those lists because Hitchcock really, I think, until um, the end of his career when the French got at him, nobody took Hitchcock that seriously. He was considered what we consider like William Castle now. It's interesting how when you read old film books, you uh, you see kind of the, the changing sentiment. Like I, I have this one on underground film by Parker Tyler, and he mentions early on in the intro about the art of film and film being a serious art form. And he talks briefly about Hitchcock and how Truffaut is the one who's going on about how much of an artist he is. And he just, you know, dismisses that. And it's just like, Hitchcock is not art. He's commercial pop and we shouldn't take him seriously. And so it's funny just to see like 40 years ago, that argument about Hitchcock not being a serious artist and the idea that he's not an artist. Yeah. I mean, it's, he was making thrillers. It's the John Ford thing, you know, John Ford, um, contemporaneously with when he was alive. In Europe, he was much more well-respected for his Westerns, whereas in America, they remembered him more for like Grapes of Wrath and his Irish movies and stuff. And it's because that 
generation of criticism couldn't take Western seriously as a, as a genre that anybody could be making art in. And like The Searchers, which is the one, if you want to talk about a movie that's been cursed by how much people love it, it's The Searchers, because that is a very complicated movie that you need kind of the background in, in Westerns to even know what it's doing to, to trick you. But anyway, um, The Searchers wasn't taken particularly seriously at its time. It, it was Scorsese's generation, the next generation, that really gave that movie its reputation. What about now? What do you think are the ones that are, you know, either from the last like 20 years or so or 30 years that you think will be re-rated in the future and, and get a little higher in people's minds that people might be overlooking like Ford or Hitchcock? I think um, mid-budget action right now mm. is doing some really, because I think w once the, the, the concept of like a musical where you just watched people dance for an hour and a half went away as sort of a um, a money making concept. You, you needed a place for just very gorgeous choreography. Yeah, the movies. raid is just you know the raid yeah. is damn near a dance movie. Yeah, the, there's the um, the scene in the middle of John Wick, which was one of the better movies of uh, 2014, I thought, where um, Keanu is just like laying waste to a nightclub. And if you look at the last great nightclub action scene, it was Terminator One. And that's a very like grim, sort of frightening, like running and hiding and shooting type of thing. And in John Wick, it's it's a dance. I mean, you're watching you're watching a dance happen, and it's Just really beautiful. Grown men dancing with each other. Yeah, I think we've we've talked about this before, but something like Pain and Gain just got trashed offhand because it was Michael Bay and no one really stopped for a moment to think is Michael Bay capable of making a good film instead they just that wrote was it off. such an interesting conversation the people who liked Pain and Gain but couldn't come to terms with that fact I thought I, it was so fascinating I saw this one review where the guy was saying how it's got great actors and the actors are what carry and they make it funny but he everything he's praising about the film he doesn't stop to consider that this is Bay's direction that has made it work People have always had that problem with Bay. I mean, I don't know how you can watch Armageddon, which has a Coen Brothers supporting cast saying lines like, why would you bring a gun to space? And then not come out thinking that it was supposed to be funny. You know, it was a very um, silly comedy, that one, that people graded on the merits of whether or not it was a good, serious space drama, which is unfair. Um, I mean, whether or not you think Armageddon was great, I'm not particularly interested in, but like, it was unfair to evaluate it on the basis of something that it was not attempting even to be. It's kind of, like, Bay is just an interesting one. I, I don't know if he's going to get a proper critical evaluation. I don't know if, if most of his films deserve it or not. But he's he's way better than anyone gives him credit for. Yeah, he's he's almost like the Andre de Toth of right now. Where he's, like, not a top-tier guy. And you can't, you know, you, you can't expect Psycho to come from him or whatever. But... When he's good, he's really good in a way that um, other maybe more consistent filmmakers aren't capable of being. For the listeners and for me too, who is uh, Andre de Toff? <laughs> he, uh, he was a director of Westerns back in the 40s and the 50s. He, he did B-Westerns and he did a lot of them. And uh, most of them weren't great, but the ones that were very good were um, striking. You know, they're visually very beautiful. The stories were pretty slim. So what's like, uh, what would be a good starting point for people who want to get into him? My favorite is uh, Day of the Outlaw, which was 1959. And it's um, Robert Ryan and Burl Ives play um, 
outlaws who come to this little town and it's just about them sort of interacting with the town while they're on the run. And it's, it's a small little movie, you know, it's, it's probably like, I think it's under 90 minutes, but it, it's, it's just like really well put together. And even though, you know, if I had to make a list of like, even like the 10 best movies in 1959, I'm not sure it would be up there, but it's just, you know, it's about as good as you can be without being great. So how did you, how did you get into all these Westerns? Like, what was your entry point? Because, you know, we're talking about lists and reading up on things. I didn't get into Westerns until late. Everybody who knows I'm into Westerns just assumes like my father was really into them because that's how people get into them. Yeah. Especially because my dad really liked movies and that's how I learned a lot of these things from. But he really wasn't. He, he's not a Western guy. He liked sci-fi and noir. So that's how I got into those things. I got into Westerns, I would say late high school, early college. And it was Stagecoach that really did it. This was before it had, you know, a DVD release. This was, um, this might've been the IMDB list, to be honest. Mm. This was just sort of giving something a shot that I didn't think I would like. And then finding that it was really like just this beautifully told story. And um, the action still at 70, 80 years, whatever it is, like still held up. And there were things they did in Stagecoach that I couldn't believe they were doing. Yeah. When you describe it like that, it almost sounds like you're talking about like a Tony Jaa movie where they do those crazy fucking stunts because they just don't give a shit. You know? Yeah. I mean, there are pieces like that. And of course, most of the movie isn't that. Most of the movie is, is a pretty um, nicely done character piece. And, and that stuff lands so well that you almost don't, you almost forget that the ending is coming, which makes the, the ending action scene, I think, so much more effective because you get so wrapped up in the story that by the time it comes, it's not like you'd been waiting for it. It's like it sort of blindsides you. Would you say that's a good first uh, Western to really get into Westerns? I think so. It's pretty simple, clean, easy one with a really nice DVD and Blu-ray, and it's quick, and the acting is really good. Yeah, that's uh, a Brad, cri- what do you think? You're, you're kind of into Westerns, too, aren't that's you? That's a criterion now, though, too, yes. by the way. I was going to say, like, Westerns are another genre that people have these assumptions about going in and then they wind up being nothing like they they're yeah nobody will ever admit a movie like uh johnny guitar or a movie like um that anthony mann one where you follow the civil war soldier who's a native american who comes back to his town and fights racism they'll never admit those movies were made i uh i took a class sophomore year of college called film and gender and it was actually film and race and gender and we watched some great stuff in that class and discovered a lot of really great things but some of the homework assignments were kind of unspecific, where she wanted us to kind of get a sense of, of other films that were kind of problematic. And so she just said, watch any John Wayne movie. And so I think people came Any into, John Wayne movie was racially was, and sexually problematic to her. And so people kind of uh, came into the searchers with the idea that it was going to be racist. And so they came out of the searchers thinking it was pro-racism because they were watching it with that attitude rather than realizing it's one of the great anti-racism films. Yeah, if, and, I mean, you're not supposed to go into The Searchers thinking he's the hero. They tell you that about 40 times in the course of the movie, that Marty is the hero. Yeah, so it was a good class, but that was like the big problem with it. And another one was to watch a Rambo movie. And uh, so I watched First Blood, and I came away from First Blood like, what What the hell? This is really painful film about Vietnam. And- Has she seen these movies? I don't know. She she was a good professor, but that was like her big thing that she she dropped the ball on. And so that that was really interesting to me is people kind of have these assumptions about the genres and sometimes they they'll either blind themselves to them to the reality when they actually see the movies 
or they'll just avoid them entirely. So it's like it's like there's this whole thing about um, boycotting the Fifty Shades of Grey movie right now, and it's like the book is is trash, sure, but the I haven't seen the movie, and I can't be sure that the movie isn't going to do something interesting with it without having seen it. Like Starship Troopers, the book is fascist, but Verhoeven took Starship Troopers and made it into a satire. So how do I know for sure that Fifty Shades of Grey isn't going to be a satire of the material? Absolutely. The thing about the Western, though, is um, it has a reputation for racism that's like not entirely unearned. But the thing about it is it was the only genre in the 1950s that consistently tackled the issue of race. So you say something like noir, which I think is easier for people to watch with a clear conscience. That's about as white as a genre can get. Every lead of every one of those movies is a white man and everybody else sort of falls away. And it's not like that in the Western, which means that you have some movies in the genre that are fairly fucking vile. But then when you have a good filmmaker who's not a shithead, you have these really beautiful films about race and about sexuality that you don't get anywhere else in the landscape of 1930s to 1950s filmmaking. You have stuff like Devil's Doorway was the one I mentioned earlier, which was an Anthony Mann movie from the perspective of a um, Native American who fought for the Union in the Civil War. Or you get Johnny Guitar, or you get um, The Gunslinger by Roger Corman, which are both about women in these towns full of men who are trying to deal with fairly toxic masculinity. And you get just these really interesting tweaks on the concept of nation building, you know? And you get that with action these days too. Yeah, because you have these sort of low genres that nobody has very high expectations for. And those are the ones I think historically that are always where the interesting things happen. Right. That's where if nobody's paying attention to you, you can make a statement that would get you in trouble in any other genre. So Brad, I asked John before, you know, what are the films of like the last maybe 20 years that you think maybe will be re-rated in the future? Do you have any thoughts on on ones that you think might get more attention? I think it's different now than it was in the past because of home video and because of the internet. Everything's kind of immediate. So I think the ones that are going to be rated differently are the ones that are kind of split right now because you're going to have the people who recognize right off the bat that this is great and then you're going to have the people who kind of it doesn't work for them. Because, you know, in the in the past when you just have to wait for a revival, something like Peeping Tom gets completely trashed on its release and forgotten, and then it, it comes back later when a new generation discovers it and is like, this is actually a fantastic movie. But today, the films that people fight over, I think, are the ones that will maybe eventually win out, or just stuff that we haven't seen, really, because it hasn't gotten as much buzz, it maybe is, is running festivals, but it's going under the radar. I think like something like Freddy Got Fingered got a bad rap right off the bat, and it's, it's something that's it's deserving of more of a cult status, which I think it's finally getting. I hate that but, fucking movie. Oh, I yeah. love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I like it. Uh, other stuff, I don't know. It's it's hard to really say. Maybe something like, I don't know, like Only God Forgives was one that was really divisive. It's, it's the divisive stuff that might... Or like James Franco's As I Lay Dying, which... Is not great, but I don't think I think it got a bad rap because people had a, a chip on their shoulder towards Franco and saying, "Who's he to adapt Faulkner?" Yeah, I agree. I think, um, and and Rotten Tomatoes is kind of a good illustration of that because people forget, like when a movie has like ninety something percent on Rotten Tomatoes, it can have that just because you know most people who watch it think, "Yeah, that was that was an all right movie." You know, it's not when you see ninety eight, it doesn't mean that it's. 98% because everybody thinks it's a great movie. Yeah. It can just be that 
the vast majority of people who watch it think it's okay, you know? And so a movie that maybe has like 50%, you got people that fucking love it and people that fucking hate it. I think maybe Spring Breakers would be an example of a movie that over time, I think people are going to realize was just a fucking masterpiece. And, you know, a lot of people do realize that now, but there are just as many that just see it as fucking trash. It's kind of easier to predict which films are going to be forgotten. Like, you can kind of look at something like Slumdog Millionaire. Or Imitation Game. Everyone's going to forget about that movie in 10 years. Like, no one's going to be talking about them. Oh, you see that a lot with the Oscars, definitely. I call those meat movies. Why meat movies? It was a term I found based on a typo in an old German book that I was Google translating. (laughs) This old German book about um, Douglas Sirk. They called one of his movies a meat movie. And I just thought that was like the perfect (laughs) description of something like Frost Nixon. Right. Or like the imitation game. Meanwhile, Cirques are are so fucking enduring. Cirques are enduring. Cirques, another one who wasn't thought too highly of in his day. Yeah. I mean, actually, the the people who I think best anticipated how good Cirque were were the Nazis. (laughs) They were trying to get him to um, head UFA. He was supposed to be um, about uh, about as high up in in the Nazi hierarchy as Reifenstahl. He left the country over it. So Nazis wrong on Jews, right on Cirque. Yeah. He he fled because of it. I think he's the one who his son was in Nazi propaganda movies. And he went to the theater once and saw his son in one of them and was just like, I can't do this. And That's left the frightening. Country. I think that was him. Yeah, they, they tried to do that with Fritz Long too and he fled the country that night. Goebbels or somebody uh, sat down with him and said, look, we'll overlook the fact that you're half Jewish if you make all these films for us. And he's like, let me think about it. And that night he just fled to Paris. Which is why... And I understand the impulse to do this, which is why I get so mad when people call Reifenstahl like a great feminist icon. And I know there's not a lot of women to like latch onto in that era of filmmaking, although they are there. I mean, Dorothy Arzner is right there. But, you know, Reifenstahl is like a big one. And she was very talented and everything. But I hate the idea of people like dismissing what she did because they need another role model because she was intimately complicit in the greatest mass murder in human history. You know, I mean, she used slave laborers to make Typhland. You can't excuse that because there weren't enough women filmmakers then. It's just that that's the other frustrating thing about the canon. Sometimes some of the ones who make it in, you know, like trying for the will, it is an extraordinary accomplishment, but it's not something that if you're just casually interested in movies, you should feel the the urge to watch. Yeah, that's one I think you can you can safely skip. I don't yeah. think that's a necessary one. That's more like a, a curiosity. And then they'll try to soften it sometimes. Like um, Scorsese's big thing is he tries to push for the fact that um, Birth of a Nation wasn't a very influential film because it's so reprehensible morally. So he'll say that um, that Italian one, Cabiria, uh, I think it's called, was a bigger deal and Intolerance was a bigger deal. And it's just not true it's not true but people say it because they're more comfortable dealing with those films than with birth of a nation which is essentially the original sin of filmmaking but you have to kind of you have to look at that you have to look at the fact that i mean the idea of cross-cutting is something that came out of a kkk propaganda piece you know and it's terrible but there is this movement though where it is uncovering kind of you know this is another issue with the canon is who's forgotten who deserves to be in there and people like uh, Elise Guy Boucher, yeah, um, like people from the earliest days of the silent era who have been 
from Lois Weber. Yeah, I was just going to bring her up. Um, you ever see Hypocrites? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that movie's movie. amazing. And so these people who are left out of the canon in favor of of other types, or or Oscar Micheaux is is forgotten and only now being really rediscovered and talked about again. I'm not sure Micheaux was ever really forgotten. But I, mean, but I guess the point is just that you know there's there was for a long time that sort of white male director dominance in um, Western culture. So the the canon's kind of picking up now and going back and really being like, well, who else was there? And I think that's why Riefenstahl is also being, you know, getting pushback finally, saying like, well, she was a Nazi. And people, I think people are finally starting to say, well, that doesn't really excuse her just because she was a woman or just because she did great cinematography. I think Ackerman's still overlooked as far as influence. Ackerman will always be overlooked. Though. Yeah. I mean, she's one of those ones who was working on the fringe for so long that at least within our lifetime, I don't, I, I think that's sort of just her lot. And the biggest boost she got was Criterion. Um, yeah. We should talk about Criterion briefly because, you know, they, they are the new canon, I think. Yeah. They have yeah. their, they have created a canon just by what they put out and what they restore and distribute. And they find great stuff that, um, you know, is forgotten for the most part and then they bring it back to light. But um, the other issue with that is some people kind of take it to be definitive when they, you got to remember that they're a DVD distribution company. So sometimes right. it's just yeah, it's like, the, they, it's the Armageddon fight again. They, they can't include something because they don't have the rights to it. So it doesn't really get part of their canon because somebody doesn't want to give up the rights to the movie for them to put it out. Yeah. I get the sense that there's so many that they would want to put out that they just you know, and we'll never know the story, but there, there's probably so many rights issues that get in the way of certain titles that they would be frothing at the mouth trying to get. Yeah, look at what, the ones they used to have. You know, King Kong was one of their first. And, yeah. And all the laser discs. Yeah. One, one of the finest things Taxi they've done, driver. though, is the, uh, the Eclipse series. Yes. That is, that oh, is my fantastic. God. We're all that big is, Eclipse fans at Smug Film. Me and John, man, we love the Eclipse. My favorite of those, I haven't, I've only seen a handful of them. I've been trying to pick them up more. But my favorite so far is the uh, the Czech New Wave one. Oh, yeah, with daisies and all that. Yeah, and like uh, the joke. The joke is fantastic. That's a film that should be bigger in the canon that's not. Yeah, I mean, Eastern European stuff is its own problem because that stuff was not accessible for so long. So there, I've, I've been on a sort of quest for the past like four or five years of just watching a lot of... Um, soviet films because they didn't really come over a lot and it's you know like it's a whole second cinema of masterpieces tarkovsky made it over but below him you know there were there were so many just incredible films in the um particularly i think in the 70s that they were doing that um you have a hard road canonizing them now because they were off the map for so long and they're still fairly inaccessible i have to go through sort of like a silk road to even get to them. But stuff like uh, At Home Among Strangers, which is this movie about um, the 1917 revolution. I mean, it's, I was watching that on my uh, train commute home a couple years ago. And I remember just like holding the laptop like up to my face. I couldn't even believe how incredible some of that camera work was. And um, it was just something I downloaded on a lark that turned out to be like, I think maybe one of like the hundred best movies I've ever seen. Wow. There's, there's an Iranian film I love called The Cow. Oh and, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um by a director named I, I'm gonna butcher his, his name, but it's Darius Mejui. It's about a farmer who 
loves this cow. It's the only cow in his small little village. And he goes away for a week on business and he has to leave the cow behind and it dies. And he loves this cow more than he loves his own family. And so the villagers are like, we can't let him know the cow died. So they tell him it ran away and he just goes catatonic. It drives him mad. And he, he it's this really powerful film and it's, it's largely forgotten in the West, but it is the sole reason after the Islamic revolution in Iran that film was not outright banned because the Ayatollah was a big fan of it. Wow. And it's the only reason that we now have Kiarostami and the others who from that 90s wave that brought Iranian film to the centerfold. But I, I feel like the cow has still struggled to really come over and show that like, hey, there's been Iranian film before Kiarostami and those guys. Yeah, and pre-revolution Iranian film is really, um, I might even prefer it sometimes. I've been on a, um, on a weird little walkabout for the past few months where I've been trying to watch one movie from every country. And I know it's sort of a, like a fool's errand. I mean, some countries just flat out don't have movies and uh, others like, you know, they don't exist anymore. So there's some of them you got to figure out, well, like, is this a Serbian film, a Croatian film? What is it exactly? But it's just fascinating to see the, the absolute masterpieces that will come out of just like out of the blue. Like Kyrgyzstan out of nowhere has one of the greatest batting averages I've ever seen for a country. Really? Yeah. Every film from Kyrgyzstan I've ever seen is like, I want to tell the world about it, you know? And then other areas, it's just so hard to access. And um, Latin America is a big example where it's just like very hard to get English subtitles on most of those movies. And even surprising places like Canada does not seem to have that much of an appreciation for their own film heritage. And there's a great history of Canadian independent cinema that's kind of hard to get to because there's just no like institute or apparatus in place. I mean, they have their national film board, which is good, but it's, they're too big a, a country with too long a history for just one, you know, one facility to take care of. Well, it's not Degrassi, so why should they care about it? You know? Yeah. There's a, uh, a film that I really love that, you know, I came to from watching um, that great show, Dinner for Five, that John Favreau hosted on the IFC network. And on it, Peter Falk is talking about uh, Bread and Chocolate, a Nino Manfredi movie. And for a while, that seemed like a movie that was destined for the canon that would be like a Criterion release and people would really love. It's a very, very funny Italian movie that also deals with like immigration and some really dark stuff. And the DVD for it is fucking terrible. The subtitles are hard coded and they miss like a bunch of lines and sometimes they don't line up perfectly. But even watching it like that, it's a fucking fantastic movie. And it's one of those movies you just, if it had a restoration, people would fall in love with it. Absolutely. But it's kind of like a slog because of that. But what shines through is fucking fantastic. It's a great movie. And I think Criterion obviously hasn't been able to get the, get the rights for it. I'm sure it's on their radar. And the fact that it's just had this like DVD from, I guess it probably came out in like 1999 or 2000. It was one of those early ones. You know, it's, it's probably a rights issue that's just preventing it from ever being part of the canon. Well, what's amazing is now it doesn't so much matter. I mean, it matters in, in the sense of giving a movie its due. But I mean, think about just the three of us. And maybe the community of people isn't more than a couple thousand, but you can, I mean, you can access so many strange films in so many places now through the internet that 
the, the, the wealth of stuff available for us, I think, is orders of magnitude what was available for any other generation oh, absolutely. interested in film. The mere it, fact that if we want to watch Seven Samurai, we don't have to wait for it to come to some small... Yeah, but even ignoring that, I mean, I'm talking about just stuff like the Internet Archive and things that aren't even totally curated. Yeah. Or even YouTube, where there's Torrents. tens of thousands of movies. Yeah, and it, it's like it's like the Library of Alexandria just like came to life. Mm. And now we're all just sort of struggling to figure out where the pieces fall now that we can watch everything. I've used that exact metaphor before, too. It's just, it's insane. Like, just YouTube, I have like 10 different tabs open right now of movies I've been meaning to watch that have just, I would have never heard of ever before. Yeah. It hadn't been for the internet. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with a couple questions. So, see you soon. And now, Chloe Peltier reviewing a movie she's seen parts of while working at the theater. Okay. I've been working Fitty Shade. That's a movie starring 50 Cent and 50 of his friends, each wearing a different pair of sunglasses. It's actually a movie with two people. One of them looks kind of like Carrie Elwes. Another one looks kind of like Charlotte Gainsbourg. Maybe they just look that way to me. But specifically in The Princess Bride and in Nymphomaniac, only younger and shot more detailed with a lot of back and forth glances with their eyes, where their eyes look really shiny. And there's a lot of gasping that sounds like it was 80-yard but kind of in a good way. There's this thing about focus pictures that I've noticed. Focus pictures are the guys who did this movie, Fifty Shades of Grey. They're also the guys who did Theory of Everything, and they also did The World's End. Uh, I really like The World's End. It's a great movie, but the other ones are eh, whatever. But even though they're eh, whatever, they feel more awesome kind of in a music video way the way they do the timing of their editing and the way they shoot colors or color correct colors. I'm not really sure. Maybe both. It just kind of, it has a vibe that clicks where it feels rhythmic and good to watch, even though it might not be a good movie. There's a lot of sex in this movie. For the most part, it's almost like a softcore porn. And I kind of am excited that that exists, but at the same time, it sucks that they talk about it so much in the movie and in such a cheesy way and a lot of the girls who go in there are drunk and laughing and they kind of just giggle a lot it's almost like they don't take it seriously or they're afraid to take it seriously and they took it seriously when they were at home but don't want to take it serious in the theater next to their friends because they come in there in big groups They often ask me as soon as I greet them, so is it good in like a winking way? And I think what they're trying to ask me is, is there any cock in the movie? And I'm like, well, there's a lot of titties. And then they're all disappointed. They go, only titties? And then I go, yeah, I I mean, I don't think there's a a lot of anything else, but I don't want to say it out loud. I don't know why people, it's not only that people are more comfortable showing titties than cock on screen they're also more comfortable saying titties than cock in public apparently that's it's about it but they seem happy with the guy i he doesn't really do a lot for me but it's fine i haven't read the books so maybe they're expecting there to be a lot of cock shots because the books maybe they had the they, they just seem disappointed but they seem happy that he's in the movie whenever he walks on screen they get really excited so he must be Christian Grey enough for them. That's about it. I can't really think of anything else to say about it. Thanks, Chloe. And now, back to the show. 
All right, this question is from Nick, and he asks, what's your favorite movie that you're sick of watching? I got to think about that. Yeah, me too. That's a tough one. It's almost like I don't want to say something and then realize, like, no, I'm not sick of watching that. I could totally watch that more. Like, I was almost about to say The Big Lebowski, but then I was like, no, I could totally watch that again. I couldn't. I could never watch Big Lebowski again. I don't think I need to see 2001 again. Yeah, I'm, oh, probably, I, I'm probably good on 2001. It's so, it's so cemented into my memory. Yeah. If like, I, I want to watch it, I can just... Much, yeah, yeah, I remember pretty much every frame of it. I don't... I could just sit down and think about it and like, yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm good. <laughs> oh, okay, I got one. I really, in high school and um, a little bit afterwards, my friends and I got super into the Rocky Horror Picture Show and we, we went so many times to that midnight screening. They used to do it in Harvard Square and I just, I, I can't do it anymore. It's just, it's too much. I, I still enjoy the music, but I can't watch that movie again. There are certain 90s comedies like uh, Tommy Boy and Black Sheep that I've seen so many fucking times that like, and I always like them when I'm watching them. But if I ever needed to like not see a movie again, I can, I remember like every fucking scene of those movies. I remember every fucking inflection in Chris Farley's voice and David Spade's voice when he's saying stuff. I, I could probably get away with never seeing those again, even though I fucking love them and think they're hysterical. I got a rough one. It almost hurts to admit it. I don't think I need to watch the Indiana Jones movies again. I agree. Yeah. I, Especially I, the I fourth one. <laughs> Especially no, number four. <laughs> Raiders in particular. I saw Raiders so many times over the years. Oh, yeah. You know, I know every beat of Raiders. I know every word of Raiders, every musical cue. And it's, I mean, it's a tremendous movie. And I think anybody who hasn't seen it is a friggin' lunatic. But I, I don't know that I need to see Raiders again. I, I won't I get know. out of it what I got out of it before I was inured to it. Yeah, I don't know if I need to see Brazil again, which was one I, I really loved in high school. Yeah, Gilliam's but, a good choice for that. Yeah. I'm not confident I needed to see Brazil the first time, to be honest. <laughs> I, I loved it. Like, in high I wouldn't school, call but... it a bad movie, but something about it is just like, I can't muster anything for it. Oh, me too. I'm, I'm not big on Gilliam in general. I mean, 12 Monkeys, I loved. 12 Monkeys is great, but I don't know if I, I need to see it ever again. I've only seen it once, and it's so fucking vivid in my memory, which is a great testament to it. But it's it's too vivid. It's like there's yeah. nothing I missed. It's like I got it. Sometimes they'll just be like you'll know them too well. You yeah. know what that happened to me with that I cannot. I know for a fact I can't watch this again because I tried to and just gave up. Conan the Barbarian. Really, which I've loved for like twenty years. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, and I love Conan the Destroyer too. I'm big on that one. I'm like the only guy who likes that one. Yeah, you are flat out. The thing about that's a great movie. The thing about Conan though is it's it's a movie that I know really well, and it's also very slow, which is a bad combination. It is slow. Yeah, it's a 2001 thing. It's just like you know, it's like you know exactly what you're gonna get, and you know exactly how long it's gonna take to get you there. Yeah. You know, and I've seen them a lot, but I could say that for Paul Thomas Anderson films. I don't need to see Magnolia again. I don't need to see Boogie Nights again. I could see Hard Eight again just because I don't remember too much of it, you know? I've I don't think I've it. ever watched one of his more than once. Yeah, it's just like you get it and then you're good. Last time I watched um, House, House I, I started getting bored. Yeah. How many times have you seen it? I probably seen it like 10 times at this point because oh, that's one of those. Oh, that's I've too many. Those, I've seen it once. I'm good. It's one of those ones when you first discover it, you start being like, you got to find everyone you know and sit them down and like, watch this. Like, and then you, you kind of, you love their reaction for it. So it keeps you going. And then you see, I don't, I don't really get that it. way. I'll tell people to watch a movie, but like, I won't feel the urge to watch it with them. Maybe I'm more of like a hermit. 
like a troll. Do you like spy on them troll. from like a, a I, little camera in no, the corner? I'll, I'll check in with them after, <laughs> but you know. I rarely rewatch films unless I'm watching them with somebody who hasn't seen them before. Like I, I, I have a DVD collection, but it's mostly just to be like, hey guys, you haven't seen this. I want to sit you down and, and show it to you. Very magnanimous of you. What's one of those that you, that's like your go-to? My go-to? Yeah, like one that you find that a lot of people haven't seen and you're just like, all right, we're, we're watching this, man. I don't know. It used to be House. I don't know what it is anymore. I don't really do it as much. Like, I, I did it a lot a few years ago, but I don't really do it as much anymore. That's like a college thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, like when you when you live in the same building as everybody you know. Yeah, That's Buffalo, do that. Buffalo 66 is one of those for me. I always encounter people that just haven't seen it. I'm like, dude, come on. Just fucking watch this. And I, um, I guess Eric Schaefer is like a big one too because a lot of people just haven't seen any of his films. And he's one of those guys where if you connect with him, you're set. You Every single one of his movies you're going to love. So it's just, it opens up that door. And maybe Cirque is like that too. If you see your first oh, Cirque yeah. Yeah. and you like it, you're, you, you just fucking lucked out. You just like hit the lottery. He abs- yeah, I've seen probably like 25 from him now and maybe only two or three haven't connected. Yep. John Ford is like that too. I'd say uh, Melville too. I fucking yeah. love Melville. Ooh, yeah. And I feel like if you, even if you like just see like one of his heist ones, you're going to like his slower ones. You're going to like his uh, yeah. romance stuff. You're going to like everything that he put out. He's he's probably my pick for the most solid French filmmaker of all time. The, yeah. the Melville that I like the least is Le Samurai. And really? Yeah, because I, I think I saw... Uh, the Red Circle first, and that one blew me away. And so I started watching all his things. And by the time I got to Le Samurai, it was almost just like it wasn't as good as the rest of them. Have you seen uh, Leon Marine Priest? No, I haven't. Oh, I adore that one. That might be my favorite. That's that's probably neck and neck with um, uh, Le Doulot, or however you say it. You know, yeah, that one I uh, I watched when I was dead tired, and I don't remember a single second of that. That's movie. worth like a revisit, I'd say. I yeah. love that one. That, that's when I'll rewatch some, something by myself is if I like can't remember the movie, but I remember enjoying it and I'm like, I'm going to sit down and, and give it a second go. I'm a big rewatcher. I, I watch a lot of things like two or three times. Are there ones that like you didn't like at all first time, but you liked second time? I usually it, won't rewatch something if I didn't like it the first time, yeah. but um, Step Brothers. Yeah, Step Brothers. Which I think is the story of a generation not liking Step Brothers the first time <laughs> and then liking it the second time. I saw it, it in the theaters and and not many people were like fully on board. There yeah, were chuckles. Too. There was, you know, sparse chuckles. And then every time I rewatch it, it's the funniest fucking thing. Yeah. I, yeah, I, me I too. My college roommate had it. And the second time I was like, oh yeah, it was good. I think looping back to the canon, one good thing the canon does is that when I see a, a film that I don't like, but everyone else loves it, I will, it will motivate me to go back to it and give it a second chance. The first time I saw Eight and a Half, it did nothing for me. And I was just, I didn't get why everyone loved it. It just it bored me. Boy, but that everyone, clicked with me faster than almost any movie I've ever seen. I decided That's to one give of those it, like movies of my life for me, Eight and a Half. Yeah, I gave it a second go because, you know, it was like in every top 10 list. And I was just like, all right, like, I feel like I missed something the first time. And watching it again... It's still not like a great love. Like I, I don't love it, but I got way more out of it the second time and I'm glad I rewatched it. Maybe I should try that one again because I really didn't dig it first time around. So maybe I'll like it second. Who knows? The thing about Eight and a Half is it was, I think, the first Italian movie I, I saw or at least the first one that I knew was Italian. And all of the structural sort of 
idiosyncrasies and problems with the Italian film industry, which was, you know, they had to loop all the dialogue right. and and the stories were kind of that kind of shit always more, gets in the way for me the loop dialogue yeah stuff. And, the, and the stories were more outlines than they were actual stories and, and just the sort of you know like peculiarities of the way they made their movies all worked in eight and a half for me and they all enhanced the mood and then for the next i think probably three or four or five italian movies i saw after that including like dolce vita and all that they didn't so like I was scared off Italian film for a long time and it, I've only like sort of recently started to come around to non-Western Italian film in general. And I, I, part of it, I think, is because Eight and a Half was so good and blew me away so much that it ruined me for the entire rest of that nation's cinema for like over a decade. See, for me, I was so used to like falling in love with Italian cinema immediately, like five minutes into watching it. Like I... You know, I watched a lot of De Sica before I saw Eight and a Half, and I was just used to just fucking falling in love, man. I mean, Sophia Loren, you, I mean, I've never loved a De Sica movie. Really? Never. You never fallen in love with Sophia Loren? She's gorgeous, but I've never loved one of his movies. Mm. I've liked most of them. I've never really, never loved one. I would have pegged you for liking Bicycle Thieves. I know, but no, it just. Because it almost feels like the kind of TV that you love from like you know, Naked City and those yeah. little stories. It's like, maybe if it was like a half hour Naked City with like Bicycle Thieves. I mean, I, I like it. On paper, I should love it, but it's just something about it. It doesn't really click for me. Mm. It's something you, about the style of acting in, in uh, Italian movies, maybe. I'm not sure what it is exactly, but it's just, there's something about it that every time I'm like, all right, just like back away from me a little bit. The thing that convinced me to give eight and a half a second go was that I loved La Strada. I just, I absolutely adore that It's another that movie. one I never loved. Yeah, I, I love that film. It's, it's probably top 25 favorites. But um, that's what convinced me to be like, all right, I got to give Fellini another go after this. I got to try eight and a half again. Yeah, maybe I should give Fellini more of a chance. Right? I'm the only film person I know who doesn't love La Strada. I've never seen it. It's one of those ones. It's like uniformly, and I guess rightfully so. It's really, you know, like it's, it's quick and parts of it are fun and it's really touching and the, you know, it's well cast, but something about it, it just didn't didn't click. Uh, I love Anthony Quinn in that movie. Uh, I love him in everything. He's a tremendous actor. I guess I got to check out La Strada. All right, guys, this was a good episode. Good talking to y'all. If you haven't signed up already, by the way, sign up to Smug Film Club. You get bonus podcast episodes. It's just a little mailing list. We just send you free shit. We don't send you you know, notices when episodes go up. We know you already know that stuff. We know you follow the site in other ways. We just want to give you free stuff. All we need is your name and your email address, and that's it. John, any uh, parting words for our audience? Uh, yeah, if you got, you know, a young teenager getting into film, start him with the canon, but don't keep him there too long. Right on. And Brad, any uh, parting words? Uh, yeah, I agree. And don't feel bad if you don't like a film in a canon. Damn right. All right, y'all. See you later. Bye-bye.